The third thing that we have got to show together is that we can restructure the banking system around sound banking principles that deliver the integrity and the trust and the openness and transparency that is essential for people to once again trust the banks. And welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Laura Conaway in New York, and I have a special co-host joining me today. Hi, Laura. It's me, Uri Berliner, from NPR's Business Desk in Washington, D.C. I'm filling in for Adam Davidson, Alex Bloomberg, and David (laughs) Kestenbaum. That's a lot of shoes to fill. And I'm happy to say that only one of those people is out scuba diving in Belize. The others are working on a big special show and a bunch of long stories, all about the economy, of course, for This American Life and NPR. I'm hoping those will be spinning out later this week and this weekend. Meanwhile, Uri, thank you for coming in. Sure thing, Laura. Today's Monday, February 23rd. That was British Prime Minister Gordon Brown, you heard, speaking at the top of the podcast. We're going to get to Europe's banking problems in just a few minutes. We're also going to talk about America's banking problems, with Citigroup pitching a new plan today for staying afloat. First, though, the Planet Money Indicator. At the end of today's podcast, we're going to give you an indicator from a listener who's looking at a sad situation. For now, here's an indicator from the news. It's $2.30. That's what it costs to buy a share of Citigroup as of about 3.16 p.m. on the East Coast. And that's up from Friday. On Friday, you could have gotten a share of Citigroup for a buck ninety-five, Which is like a bagel and cream cheese on the cheap in New York if you're lucky. This time last year, Citigroup was trading for about $24 and change. Citigroup executives have spent the weekend and all day today talking to federal regulators about a new strategy for saving themselves in this giant financial institution. That's right, Laura. The Treasury is in talks to increase its ownership stake in Citi, bringing it up to as much as 40 percent. If this happens, the government would swap out its preferred shares and convert them into common stock. Which means that the government would essentially get even more directly involved in Citigroup, right? It sure would. The big question is just how involved. Today, I caught up with Rolf Winkler. He's a trader and a blogger, a former hedge fund guy who runs a website called Option Armageddon. The first thing I asked him is to explain what common and preferred shares are and how they're different. You're buying uh, a piece of the company's equity, right? You're buying a piece of the company's net worth. Well, to whatever degree that the company's assets are worth more than the company's liabilities, I'm paying for a share of that. That's okay. what a common share is. Okay. Now, that's what uh, a bunch of people have, that those common shares in Citigroup. They're not worth that much. They're worth around $2 a share right now, correct? Yep. Mm-hmm. Now, the government has something called preferred shares in Citigroup. What are those? A uh, preferred share is... Kind of like, kind of, it's it's kind of like a common equity share. It's it's basically the government investing in the business um, instead of buying the stock directly on the market. Um, the government buys preferred shares because, well, in essence, it doesn't. If it if it bought the common, it would basically buy out the shareholders. It would effectively nationalize the bank. The government wants to avoid this. It wants to try and keep the banks in private hands. So it tries to plug the hole in the company's capital by 
giving them preferred equity, which is a different part of the capital structure than the common equity, which the shareholders still technically control, even though basically the banks are all insolvent, right? The common is worth less than zero. The only reason Citigroup still trades for $2 is because its shareholders, the people who now own the stock, are making a bet that the government is going to ride to the rescue. The government is going to absorb the losses, and shareholders will be left just with a good bank. So, and if that happens, they'd make a lot of money. So today we're learning that those government may actually convert those preferred shares into common shares. What happens in a most basic level, leaving aside whether it's a good buy or a bad buy, but what happens? Let's say there are 100 shares of um, Citigroup common stock, and the government has 100 shares of preferred stock. And it says, okay, we're going to convert all our preferred stock into common stock. Does that mean that all of a sudden there are then 200 shares of common stock? Um, based on reports today, um, it sounds like what the government is talking about is converting its preferred stake into approximately 40%. It's going to, it's going to trade it for 40% of the common. So round that up to 50%, basically, if there were 100 shares of common existing, right, now the government is going to say, well, we also get 100. So now there's going to be 200 for the same pool of equity. So basically, you dilute shareholders by half. So that means there are, there are more actual shares out there, but they're not worth more money. There's no value created to the company, but there are more shares out there. Is that correct? Well, theoretically, they're worth less money, right? Because if the actual con if the if the total equity is the same amount but the number of shares that control that equity is higher then each share is worth less does so, that make sense yes it does if, so the, if the equity is is a million dollars and there were 100 shares outstanding then everyone owns approximately $10,000 worth of equity now that there's 200 shares outstanding everybody owns about $5,000 worth of equity so each of the shares would be worth less. So the people who have, or and the institutions that have invested in Citigroup, their shares already aren't worth much. But uh, now the government comes marching in and and buys up all these common shares. They're not going to be too happy, are they? Um, they they actually might be because again, what I the shareholders that are left only really care about they're throwing a hail mary pass. They're thinking, all right, I'll pay a dollar for this stock. Really, it's worthless right now because the bank is insolvent. But it's possible that the government, all of these machinations, all, of these, all, the, all the different things they're trying to do, TARP, the bad bank idea, converting preferred to common, they're all of a piece. They're all trying to desperately keep these banks in private hands. The only way to truly do that is to actually absorb the losses right, to do a bad bank, for instance, and buy all the toxic assets up, the remaining shareholders say to themselves, yeah, my stake is worth zero. It's not even worth a dollar now. But if the government takes that additional step, if it buys all those toxic assets off the balance sheet, which they still could, theoretically, then all of a sudden I'm left with a good bank and my shares are worth a lot more, right? So they're willing to put up with a little dilution right now um, because that's not, that's not the bet they're making. That's not the investment thesis. Um, they're throwing that Hail Mary, hoping that the government will just absorb most of the losses and leave the bank in their hands. So this move, converting the uh, preferred shares to common shares, does this cost the government anything out of pocket immediately? Um, I think the 
negotiations are ongoing, and I, 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 in the reports I read early today, I didn't see that, you know, the government is going to spend any more. Um, it's there's no actual cash outlay um, to the degree that the 45 billion dollar preferred stake gets converted into 40 percent of what's left of the common, which at this point would be worth about five billion dollars. Then, you know, it's costing taxpayers more money. We're basically reducing their stake in the company. So, um, uh, again, that looks like... more cash out of the Treasury. So that means we're trading $45 billion of an investment into the Citigroup into about 4 or $5 billion worth of common shares? Yes, approximately. That's, that's a decent way to think about it. Those are the kinds of deals our government's cutting? Um, yeah, I mean, the government is basically trying desperately to, uh, like I've said, kick the can down the road. We're just going to try and give money to the banks um, to keep them out of bankruptcy. Uh, it makes a little bit of sense when you think about what would actually happen if it went into bankruptcy. The FDIC would take over Citigroup, and the losses, I mean, taxpayers via FDIC would be responsible for paying back depositors um, for resolving the bank's assets. So the government is going to have to take losses anyway. If the government thinks that by delaying that day of reckoning, by delaying the day of insolvency, that maybe some by some miracle that the crisis will abate, um, then maybe it will cost taxpayers less to try and do it this way. Ori, thanks for that interview with Rolf Winkler. Now, if we could just zoom out a little bit, I'd like to take sort of a more global look at things. There's another part of the world that has been grabbing a lot of press lately. It's the situation in Eastern Europe. We've looked at this some on the blog, npr.org slash money. In Eastern Europe, the stock markets have taken a beating, I mean, really a beating, and it's all about fear that the economies there are just completely falling apart. All of the countries in Eastern Europe are hurting, but one of the hardest-hit countries is Hungary. Hungary's got a huge government deficit, and despite a 25 billion-dollar credit line from the EU, the IMF, and the World Bank, things there are not looking good. To get an inside look at the country's finances, I called Janos Shamu. Janos is, a, is an analyst in Budapest with Concord Securities. There are lots of economies around the world in trouble, but why is the situation in Hungary especially bad? It is because of the fact uh, that Hungary has been postponing its task for uh, decade already. Uh, between 96 and 2006, Hungary had 10 years, which uh, we may characterize as the last decade, and this led to a state uh, which uh, became paternalist and which uh, granted uh, huge amounts of money to people in need, and uh, it grew to a scale which is uh, very large. And this led to a situation when both the public and the government as well borrowed on a huge scale, and uh, it led to an increase of debt uh, to like uh, 75% of GDP, which uh, made Hungary one of the most vulnerable countries in the region or in the world. So, so the country was very dependent on foreign borrowing, Swiss borrowing, especially Western Europe, or, or is it around the world? Well, primarily Swiss franc denominated loans uh, were, denominating, uh, were dominating the uh, household borrowing in the past uh, 
five or six years' time, more than 90% of the debt of the households that is uh, denominated in uh, foreign exchange is a Swiss franc denominated loan. These these are regular people. I mean, these are ordinary households that are borrowing in Swiss banks, not in the local currency, correct, the foreign. So they're borrowing in in Swiss, in Swiss francs. That's right. There are a lot of banks uh, with uh, mothers from Western Europe in Hungary, which had a very, very large supply of these kind of loans uh, to the public in Hungary. So Hungarian households bought their houses, bought their cars, bought their durable goods uh, on Swiss franc denominated loans, yes. You describe this as something that's happened over the course of a decade, but it's certainly accelerated and gotten much, much worse in the last couple of months. Is this primarily because of the decline in the currency? Does it have to do with the broader financial crisis? What's going on? Well, the situation got worse when the outside world, the rest of the world, started not to finance these large debts of the state and of the household sector. And this is connected with the global financial meltdown that has been happening for the past uh, one, one and a half years, which was accompanied with the with the depreciation of the foreign uh, versus the euro and versus the Swiss franc. And this made household uh, servicing costs to increase relative to their income. When they borrowed the Swiss franc, uh, they uh, borrowed it at an exchange rate of uh, 155, 160 versus the foreign. And now the exchange rate is 200 uh, foreign per Swiss franc, which means you have to pay 30, 33% higher monthly uh, payment for your debt uh, than at the time when you borrowed. Well, that sounds worse than one of those subprime loans that adjusts. That sounds pretty bad. So, I mean, that must be hitting households really bad. So what, what's, it, what's the impact on day-to-day life in Hungary? Does it feel to you like a country that's in a crisis? What we can see in everyday life is that for people uh, to buy um, a house or to, to buy a car is getting to be more and uh, more difficult. Retail sales have been uh, plunging recently. Used car sales uh, are halved uh, versus uh, last year. And we can see that uh, even to sell a flat, it, is, it has become uh, very, very difficult. So uh, this is what is at the moment characterizing everyday life. We, we are not uh, currently seeing a large-scale bankruptcy of households, so they are uh, still able to uh, finance their debt. Is there any concern about bankruptcies among banks or even among the go- even in the government? Yes, we can see that the market is very nervous uh, about this outcome. If you look at prices of government bonds or prices of, of local banks, then we can see that the investors are attaching a larger and larger probability for both banks and the state to go bankrupt. And the bankruptcy of the state was, I believe, the largest. The probability for the bankruptcy was the largest uh, last autumn. At that time, the uh, International Monetary Fund has provided Hungary with a, a quite large amount of uh, credit, around 20 billion euros. And with the help of this credit line, the Hungarian government has avoided uh, bankruptcy. Let me ask a question just personally for you. What's it like? Has your own 
lifestyle changed? Uh, what you do, how much you go out, what you you know your inclination to spend a lot of money has that changed because of the financial situation there? Of course, um, all the industries are affected by the slowdown in activity. So the banking system that I am working uh, is not an exception either. So the income outlook is, of course, uh, worsening. This makes uh, people and myself as well to be uh, saving more and uh, spending less. And this is what I can see on on the case of my friends as well. Laura, Janusz Samu really is in the middle of a huge developing story. Eastern Europe owes something like $1.5 trillion to Western European banks. Yeah, last week on the blog, Alan Cordova wrote about just how nervous those banks are. And the picture I found to go with it was of people in Belarus picking out secondhand clothes literally in the snow at this open market. Sounds pretty grim. The average monthly salary in Belarus is less than $500 U.S. Which is very poor. I mean, I grew up in a poor state in the United States. I grew up in Mississippi. And that's poor. I mean, you know, I've seen people who didn't have, you know, enough food on the table. This teacher of mine used to joke about schools not being able to afford the air for their basketballs. I don't know if that was ever. You grew up in Manhattan, right? I did, yeah. You guys have um, air for your basketballs, right? There are p- plenty of air for our basketballs. In in Manhattan or throughout New York, um, on the basketball courts, the outdoor courts, they have plenty of air for the basketballs, but they don't have nets on the hoops. And I and I always wondered why that was. And, <laughs> why is um, it? Well, I mean, either it was because the nets always got stolen or because they couldn't afford them. But everyone learned how to shoot without a net on the basket. Do you ever get into a fight over whether the ball went through? You know, actually, that happens. If you if it's a really long shot and no one's standing right under the basket, it's kind of hard to tell. Yeah, I would think. I mean, schools in, in the United States oftentimes say that they're running right on a shoestring budget. But this last week, I talked to a PTA president, Uri, at a school that was running out of money for literally paper. Her name is Caroline Ray. She's the PTA president at Glen Springs Elementary in Gainesville, Florida. And she told me the shortage has gotten kind of obvious. My son's, like, stopped bringing math homework home, basically, because there's not paper to print it on. I mean, so. we've, all been, we've all been hearing that the paperless office is coming, but the paperless first grade is kind of hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine. So what does the PTA president do when there's no paper? We just spend our money on paper, money that we would, you know, save to try to buy playground equipment or, you know... Um, throw carnivals or have, you know, field days, those kind of events for the kids. We just end up having to spend it on paper. So, Uri, the PTA gave the school $1,000, and that's out of its basically $12,000 fund that it's been saving up to try to buy some playground equipment. I talked to the school principal also, and he said it's not really unusual for the PTA to have to contribute, but things are definitely worse this year. Laura, wherever we go, the economy's really not much fun, really just about anywhere. One exception, I would say, is when you're the guest host on Planet Money, then it is quite a bit of fun. Well, we thank you for stopping by, Uri. Check out Planet Money all week on the blog. It's at npr.org slash money. I'm Uri Berliner. And I'm Laura Conaway. Thanks for listening. I'm